The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, hey, my name is Pastor Paul Stevens. I'm the lead pastor of this church. Uh, I like to climb mountains and I talk very quickly. Um, just kidding. Some of you guys are visiting for the first week and you're like, what is he talking about? Um, hey, my name is Sam Peck. It's so, so rad to be back um, here with you guys. I know some of you guys, I don't know a lot of you guys, so just kind of give a, a quick second to, to introduce kind of who I am and my connection here. Um, spent a lot of time up here, um, a lot of time in this church with, with you lovely and precious saints. Um, I was on staff here about five years ago, um, for, for six years, up until about five years ago. I was on staff here as um, one of the pastors and served with with your current pastors, other than Paul, Paul got here after, um, but it was such a, such a joy. And then you guys, um, generously and graciously sent myself and a, a team of about 30, um, to Grants Pass to plant a church, um, just about five years ago. And that church is called Philippi. And so, uh, it's, it's super, super exciting to be able to come back and visit and, and see so many familiar faces. Pastor Paul, the real Pastor Paul, um, is, is at Philippi preaching right now, um, and probably not making that lame joke, but uh, he's, he's, he's there. So we, pulp, we did a pulpit swap this week just to stay connected. Um, just wanted to give you guys just a, a little bit, for those of you that, you know, maybe don't know that, that Heritage planted a church, um, um, you did, and thank you for, for doing so. Uh, you know, I know it's, it's really core to the, um, the, the theology, the philosophy of ministry, the heart of both Heritage uh, and Philippi to plant churches. It's something that we see in the book of Acts that we see um, as, a, as really a, a, a biblical precedent. And so a number of years ago, um, we were blessed to be able to be the first church plant uh, out there. And God has been exceedingly kind. Um, God is doing great things in, in Grants Pass. We're, we're right downtown uh, in, a, in a loft, kind of a building, um, right across from the first Dutch Bros stand, and uh, we've been we've been meeting open on Sundays for about four and a half years. God's been so kind. We started with about thirty, and now that we have just around about three hundred people that are that are part of the church. So we've been so blessed to see people get saved, to see people grow in their faith, um, to to just be a, a church family and a church body that that sources our life in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, and, and continues to teach the word. the The name of this church is Heritage, and uh, I think that was prophetic. I think that the the, the desire, I know that the desire of heritage was to outlive itself and to reproduce and to multiply. And that's our desire at Philippi too. We, we are looking and excited about planting a church ourselves, And so this church will have grandchildren, which is exciting to think about, uh, you know, at some point. So just want to, yeah, I want to say, first of all, things are going well in Grants Pass. Please pray for us. Um, I want to say thank you so much for the investment that this church made in the gospel work in Grants Pass. Uh, it's been such a gift and we are so blessed to have ascending church. I'm, we're still very connected with you guys, whether you realize it or not. Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Aaron are both um, like provisional elders on our board still and, and will uh, we'll continue to be as long as I can keep them. Um, at some point, they're going to get sick of me and, and kick us out, you know, like, like you do your senior in high school and get out of here. But uh, we still have them and Paul and I are, are still connecting quite a bit, climbing mountains together. And then uh, we are teaching through the same passage as you, as you guys. So we are also in Daniel talking about horns and little horns and, and horns on top of little horns. Um, so yeah, that's been good. That's been fun. Uh, we won't be in Daniel today, but that's, that's okay. So things you can pray for our church, by the way, pray, uh, we have completely maxed out space in our facility. Uh, so we, we are, yeah, praise God. And oh my goodness. Oh yeah. All that at the same time. So, and we're kind of fat guy in a little coat, really. We're, we're in a pretty small space that seats really should seat 200. And we've been putting more than that in there. So pray for us that we would know um, what to do about that and, and where to go from there. Um, we're appointing more local elders right now. We're, we're months away from that. So that's exciting. Um, we, we've been continuing to add staff. So, so that's been exciting. But pray that we could continue to shepherd well the people that God has in, have entrusted to us, the dear saints uh, that make up the body of, of Philippi. And um, we, as I said, desire to plant more churches. So pray that we could do that and do that well. Okay, well, let's grab our Bibles and let's open actually to Jeremiah 29. And I don't know if you guys still do this here anymore, but I'm going to ask you to stand and read God's word with me. 
We're going to stand just as a, a way of showing reverence to God's word. We're going to read Daniel 29, verse 8 and following. Jeremiah 29. Did I, did I say, what did I say? Did I say Daniel? I'm sorry. We've been teaching Daniel for like six months. It's baked into my brain. Jeremiah, sorry, 29. Don't ever listen to what I say. Listen to what I mean. Okay, that's, that's the first thing you need to know about. Um, yeah. Jeremiah 29. Let's, let's read God's word, starting in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Father in heaven, we believe that this is your word. We believe that you have written this down through the human author by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of glorifying the Son, Jesus Christ. We believe, God, that you speak, that you are a speaking God, and that we as your children, as your servants, our part is to listen. Lord, we don't seek information this morning. We seek transformation. We seek to be changed. We seek for our scope to be widened, to be broadened, to see more fully and more deeply and more richly how good and faithful and true and kind and powerful you are, God. Lord, we sit in this uncomfortable space like the exiles, waiting for your return, waiting for you to dismiss us from this temporary place. And we desire to wait faithfully and patiently to endure, to trust you in the midst of great struggle. And so, Lord, would you meet us in the pages of the book this morning? Would your spirit minister Jesus to us? Give us the gospel. Give us the freedom that comes with it. May we believe this morning the truth and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. You know, every, uh, every long and challenging endeavor reaches a point where you, you not only feel like quitting, or quitting is not only preferable, but quitting actually starts to feel logical. You ever do something extremely hard that's extremely long, and you get into the middle of it, and, and, and all you can think about is quitting. I just want, I want to get out of it. I want to stop. I don't want to do it anymore. At first you think, I don't want to do this. And then at some point you think, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. It's kind of the next logical step. And that's where quitting becomes very much a possibility in your mind, right? When you begin to think, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should be doing something else. And it's at that place where you have to begin to interact with and begin to question the person that puts you in that place. A number of months ago, uh, for some reason, I decided to try to do an ultra marathon, which was 31 miles up, up a mountain. And, uh, and, and it was terrible. Okay. It took me seven and a half hours. I felt nauseous for, for half of it. Um, I, I thought I was really prepared and it ended up being extremely difficult. And, and about three or four hours into the race, all I could think about was quitting consumed my mind. Um, I thought, you know, I could just hitchhike myself out of here, except I was in the middle of the woods. So <clears throat> I don't know how that would work. So I just kept running. And, and as I was running, I was, I was having this inner dialogue, this interaction with the person that put me in that position. You know who it was? Myself. And here's why it made quitting feel so easy, because, you know, the, tr the reality is, is I don't trust myself very much. 
I think, you idiot, why did you put me here? past Sam. What's wrong with you? What were you thinking? Why did you sign, Why did you pay $150 to torture yourself for seven hours? What's the point of this? And, I, and so it was really a struggle. Now I finished, but barely. Okay. And my point being is when you do really hard things, you have to interact with the person that puts you in the hard thing. Now, what about the hard things that we have to do in life that we didn't sign up for? What about the hard things in life that we do that we didn't say, I want to do this, we just were forced to do this. Maybe you're dealing with medical conditions. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Maybe you're raising children that, that despise you and there's, there's, there's real animosity between you. Maybe, maybe you're serving in a particular ministry or a particular area or you're working a particular job and everything in you wants to leave, but you know God has not given you that out. So what you're forced to do is you're forced to interact with the person that puts you there. And in this case, it would be God. There are certain things that God has sat us in and said, you must do this. You cannot go around this. You need to go through this. And at that moment, the only mooring line that keeps us going, keeps us from quitting, is how much we trust the person that put us there. Whether or not we actually believe that he has plans or that he's good. So, I just want to read for you, before we get to Jeremiah, I want to read for you some of the words of Jesus. Jesus was preparing his disciples uh, on the Olivet, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It was a preparation of his disciples for suffering. Jesus was going to resurrect after the cross. He was going to resurrect and ascend. And after he ascended, stuff was going to get real. The gospel was going to explode and people were going to get saved and churches were going to get planted. But at the same time, there was going to be massive tribulation and massive persecution. The, the, the Christians were going to be systematically rejected by their family systems because uh, Judaism was going to reject Christianity as a cult. So Jesus is trying to prepare them for this reality that over the next 20 to 30 years, life is going to be hard on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. Life's still going to be hard. Even though Jesus was victorious, even though he overcame sin and death and rose and ascended to the right end of the Father, suffering is still a reality. And I want you to see what Jesus reminds the disciples of in Luke chapter 21, verse 16. He gives them a whole bunch of bad news. There's going to be wars. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get thrown in prison. Stuff's going to get really hard. Verse 16, he says, you'll be delivered up even by your parents. In other words, your enemies are literally going to be the people that are supposed to protect you. And brothers and relatives and friends and some of you, they will even put to death. So he, he's literally telling these guys, you're probably, there's a good chance you are going to be murdered by your own family. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Now, if you're thinking logically, you should probably think, that sounds contradictory. <laughs> you're going to die, but you're not going to die. Okay, that makes sense. What does he mean? What he, what he means is you're, you're going to die physically. There's a good chance. But you will not die eternally. Your true life begins when this temporary life ends. When he's talking about death, he's talking about a temporal death. See, death for the believer is really life the beginning of our eternal life. And then he says this next line, and I just want you to see this, this next line that's so important. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your endurance or through your endurance or in your endurance, you will gain your lives. And what he can't mean by that is by your endurance, you won't have to die. That's not what he means. What he means is that by your endurance, you will have true life, eternal life, lasting life. In the next stage is what he's getting at there. But what I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't say around endurance. He says by endurance. He doesn't say by your avoidance, you'll have eternal life. What does he say? By your endurance. What is endurance? Endurance means you hold on. It means you keep going. It means you continue to be faithful step after step after step, even when it not only feels like you should quit, but it feels like that could be the right thing. Jesus was encouraging his disciples, and by extension, you and I in this age, that we must persevere, that God has plans for us, not around our suffering, but right through the middle of it. There are certain things in life that we simply cannot go around. We must go through them. 
because God has called us to go through them. And there's a cultural phenomenon right now. Maybe you've heard it. It's called quiet quitting. Have you guys heard of quiet quitting? Anybody? Nobody? One person. Okay. Patricio, you've heard of it. Okay, cool. Uh, everyone else? No. So quiet quitting is, is such a millennial thing. Only millennials would think of this, right? It's like, I don't like my job. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like my life right now, but I can't quit yet because I don't have a better job. So I'm going to quiet quit, which means I'm not going to show up early. I'm not going to try hard. I'm going to give minimal effort, do the least amount possible, not answer emails for three days. You, you get the idea. Quiet quitting. And the reality quiet quitting is, is that when you can't quit physically, you decide I'll quit emotionally. And why I think that today's message and today's text is, is, is pertinent for us is because our temptation as Christians sometimes, when we're put in these hard situations, is to go, well, I can't quit physically. God's not going to let me quit physically, but I'm going to quit emotionally. I'm going to quiet quit. God's heart for us as Christians is that we would not quiet quit when we are forced to go through hard things but rather that we would lean into it because God uses, listen, God uses our tribulation for our preparation. God uses our tribulation for our preparation. Don't waste it. So our text this morning, I think, answers these questions. It answers the question, how do we persevere in tribulation in this life without becoming quiet quitters? How do we not check out of it? How do we maximize it? I think our text answers this question. How do we endure patiently and faithfully when everything about our situation hurts and feels like it can't possibly be right? I think our text prepares us for that. And the reason I think that is because it's exactly what the audience it was written to was dealing with. What I want to do this morning for you guys is, is yes, we're not going to be in Daniel, but I, I wanted to bring a passage that would connect closely to the book of Daniel because you guys already understand the context of the exilic period. Okay, so, so you, you may or may not realize this, but uh, all of the Jews were not exiled to Babylon. Okay, they were exiled in waves, sequential waves, but even after the third wave, there were always still Jews, particularly in Jerusalem. So the nation of Israel at, at one point was split into to two different groups. The exilic Jews, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, And then the Jews that stayed back in Jerusalem. And what I think is so interesting about our passage this morning is it's kind of like the camera panning away from Babylon, where we've been in Daniel, back over to Jerusalem at the same time period. To say, what was going on back in Jerusalem? What were the Jews that didn't get exiled? What were they feeling? What were they thinking about? And the Jews that were in exile over in Babylon, they're they're looking to the prophets and to the leadership back in Jerusalem, wondering, what are they saying? about why we're here and how we're going to get out of here. Now, in case you're just joining for the first week and you haven't been in the book of Daniel, let me just catch you up on something. Okay, uh, at one point, uh, Israel, after years and years of rebellion against Yahweh God, was disciplined by the Lord, and they were disciplined through something called the exile. Okay, uh, let me put it this way. Israel uh, was given a wedding ring when God made covenant with Israel. Okay, when you get married, you have a covenant, a token of that covenant, right? Uh, the token of the covenant between, uh, that God made with Israel as a nation was the Sabbath. And Israel neglected the Sabbath. They neglected the Sabbath day. They neglected the Sabbath year along with a lot of other things. And so for that reason, God finally decided he was going to discipline his kids as he said that he would in the book of Deuteronomy. And he took them out of their land and allowed them to be exiled for 70 years. Which, if you're a Bible nerd, consequentially, just so happens to be 77 Sabbath years, right? So every seven years, they were supposed to take a Sabbath year. They never did. Guess how many they missed? 70. Guess how many years they were exiled? 70 years. You think that there's a message God was trying to convey there? He's saying, you took your wedding ring off. You've been unfaithful to your spouse. And now I need to work that out of you. And he did it in the exile. He did it by pulling them away. And he said, I'm going to, he he said through the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to put you in exile for 70 years. And Daniel and the other exiles, they knew this because they had access to the literature that Jeremiah had written down. Jeremiah the prophet. So, It's important to understand that. Now, the fall of Jerusalem, this is important as well. The fall of Jerusalem to Babylon was unprecedented, and therefore it was misinterpreted. What I mean by that was it never happened before. 
See, the, 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 the armies and the ancient world, uh, the ancient kingdoms had gotten right on the doorstep of Jerusalem, but they never sacked it before. It was something, God always intervened. The Assyrians got close, but God always stopped it. And so the Jews had this false security that's never going to happen, right? Surely God would not allow his people to be ripped out of their ethnic land, their geography, because here's what the Jews of the day thought. They thought, all that matters is our land, the temple. That's what God cares about. He cares about our, ethnic, our ethnicity, our Jewishness. But in reality, God didn't. He cared about his name and he cared about his people. So what he did was he allowed them to be ripped out of their homeland. But it was surprising to the Jews. I need you to see that. It was confusing to the Jews. It short-circuited their thinking. See, they could not understand why God would allow Jerusalem to fall and be sacked. They could not understand why the temple would be sacked and destroyed and why the, the vessels would be taken away. They couldn't understand that. And so for that reason, the false prophets came in at a particular time when they were supposed to be listening to the true prophets... And they capitalized on the confusion of Israel. And they began to say, this can't be God's will. Remember what I said in my introduction? Sometimes when you're doing things that are extremely hard, it not only feels preferable to quit, it feels logical. The Jews are looking at the exile and they're going, this can't be right. This can't be God's plan. It's not possible. There's no way God would put us through this. There's no way he would rip us out of our homeland and allow our land to go to seed and, and allow us to be carried away by these pagan ham-eating Gentiles in Babylon. There's no way. And the false prophets are capitalizing on this. Now, let me catch you up and give you the background to Je Jeremiah 29. Here's what chapter 27 and 28 are. In chapter 27 and 28... King Zedekiah, who was what is referred to as a vassal king, meaning he was a king of, you know, Israel, but he really answered to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Zedekiah swore allegiance to Babylon, and he should have, because that's what God actually wanted him to do. He swore his allegiance to Babylon, but he started to get uncomfortable. So, he wants to seek counsel about possibly rebelling against the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and trying to regain some kind of sovereignty, perhaps looking to Egypt or some of their other allies. That's what Israel always did. They always looked to the other allies like Egypt to try to secure their, their posture, their place. Okay, so, so, so King Zedekiah, he, he, he brings in all of the, the, the counselors and the prophets to, to have sort of a summit or a retreat or a, a, a meeting to decide if they should rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's some different people on the list of this retreat. The, the keynote speaker is a man, a prophet, in Jerusalem by the name of Hananiah. Can you say Hananiah? This, this, this side of the room is obedient. Uh, everybody else. Can you say Hananiah? Okay, we might need to bring the lights up a little bit. Okay. Um, Hananiah is the keynote speaker at this, this retreat that, that Zedekiah is planning to, to decide if they're going to rebel. And here's why Hananiah is the keynote speaker. Because Hananiah always has good news. I mean, he's always optimistic. He always has the message everybody wants to hear. He's a real popular guy. Everybody likes Hananiah. He's got that real, like, Joel Osteen smile, right? And he's always here to tell you about how you can have your best life now. So everybody buys his books, you know, when you're at, at the line in, in, in Hobby Lobby or whatever. Like, there's, there's Hananiah's book, that big smile, you know? Everybody likes him because he has good news. The problem with Hananiah is he's a false prophet. He's a false prophet. So Zedekiah, I think, invites this false prophet because he knows he's going to tell him what he wants to hear, which is we should rebel against Babylon and try to get our national sovereignty back. Now, there's another guest to the party. Who do you think that is? Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is the bummer man. Nobody likes Jeremiah. Nobody's buying his books. Why? Because he's always negative. Negative, 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 Jeremiah. Everybody's like, you're so, you're such a downer. And Jeremiah's been talking forever, even before, like even before the, uh, the, any of these events, he's been saying like, this is where God's told us to be. We're supposed to be in exile. And in chapter 27, God tells Jeremiah, hey, I want you to enact a parable. Go into your barn and get a yoke and put it on your shoulders and walk around with it on. Wouldn't you have hated to be a prophet in the Old Testament? These poor guys, they had to do some of the craziest things. Jeremiah has to enact a parable, and God says, I want you to walk around with this yoke, and it's going to be a sign, a symbol to the, the, uh, the rest of Israel that I put this yoke on you. 
That it's, it feels like Nebuchadnezzar's in charge, but really I'm the one that puts you under Nebuchadnezzar's authority. I sat you here. I put you there. Sit and do it. So here's what happens. Jeremiah shows up to the retreat. And there's Hananiah giving his speech and everybody's clapping. Oh yeah, you're great. Hananiah, you're awesome. And Jeremiah's over there with this yoke on, feeling like a fool, right? Feeling stupid. And, 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 and so what happens is Hananiah, the false prophet, he decides to make a big show of this. And he goes over in front of everybody and he says, we're going to be out of captivity in two years. And he goes over to Hananiah, takes the yoke off of his skinny little prophet's shoulders, and he snaps it over his knee. You can read all of this. It's all in chapter 27 and 28. Snaps it over his knee and says, we're not going to be under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar anymore. And you just picture Jeremiah over there, kind of like, okay, whatever, man. Like, we'll see what happens, you know. Well, the author tells us in a couple years that ultimately Hananiah, the false prophet, drops dead. Which is never a good sign, right? Okay, if somebody claims to be a prophet, they're like, I know the day that Jesus is coming back and I wrote a book, you should buy it. And then they drop dead. Don't buy the book, Okay. Shouldn't buy a book if somebody tells you when they know, if they know the date anyways. Just a little pro tip there. Okay. So, so this is the scene. Now, this all happens. Now, this is all very confusing for the exiles who are back in Babylon, right? They're looking for leadership at Jerusalem. Like, what are the prophets saying? And, they, and, they, and they're wondering, like, are we going to get out of here? And the moms and dads that are back in Jerusalem, they're like, are, are our kids and daughters ever going to come back? I mean, can you imagine? It's very similar to what just happened in Israel months ago, right? Uh, I mean, children were taken away and taken captive, and parents are like, are they ever going to come home? Are the hostages ever going to be released? This is what the, the, the parents would be like in Jerusalem, wondering. Everybody's wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And it doesn't help when you have false prophets telling you, oh, it'll be over in no time. You can go around the hardship, don't worry. So, let's jump into verse 1 of 29. Now, this is the moment that God decides to speak up through his true prophet, Jeremiah, to encourage the exiles to sit tight where they are. Look at verse 1, chapter 29. I know that was a long introduction, but it's all important. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now skip down to verse 4. Here's the letter. This is God speaking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who sent them there? God. Sorry, at my church, we're like crammed in this little room and like the front row is like three inches from me. So we talk back and forth. I, uh, uh, yeah, we're gonna, okay. Um, he says, I've put in there, okay? And here's what he tells him to do, verse five. Build houses and live in them. In other words, sink roots, buy a house, get a mortgage in Babylon. What, Really? Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons. Start a family. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. What city? City of Babylon. Seek the, seek the welfare of these pagans that have ripped you out of your homeland and conquered your nation where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now this is a very interesting, surprising, counterintuitive directive by God. See, the Jews would expect him to say, don't get comfortable, remember your ethnicity, remember the homeland, don't sink roots. But rather, God says, I want you to get comfortable because you're going to be here for a little while. Not forever. But you're going to be here for a little while. In other words, God says, I put you here. And you can't get out. So I want you to get comfortable. Not comfortable like apathetic. Not comfortable like syncretizing to the pagan culture. But I want you to get comfortable and accomplish my purpose in the midst of this place that I've put you. Now, the question that we want to answer and that the text answers as we continue to read is how do we sit tight when God places us somewhere we don't want to be? How do we do that? 
I guarantee if I were to sit and talk to each one of you, that all of you are in some way sitting in some kind of a situation that you don't want to be in. And it's very likely that God has put you there and that you can't get out or that you shouldn't get out. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we not quiet quit? How do we not send it in? How do we not go try to go around this thing God has put in front of us? How do we go through it? Because it's in our endurance that we will possess our lives. True life is on the other side, and we got to go through to get there. How do we do that? Well, this is what the text is going to tell us. So if you're a note taker, three keys to enduring the inescapable. Okay, three keys from the text to enduring the inescapable. Key number one, if you want to write it down, this is very important. Ignore those who tell you God's will is around hardship, not in it. Ignore those who tell you God's will is around hardship and not in it. Look at verse 8. Here's what God says to the exiles. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them. He's talking about Hananiah. He's talking about this false prophets, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Israel. So God is explicit here. He's clear here. He couldn't be more clear. He's saying, listen, you need to not listen to these false prophets. You need to not listen to these false prophets. They may be popular, but they're false. If you ever want to be a really popular voice in culture, just tell people what they want to hear. You want to sell a lot of books? You want to get a lot of likes and subscribers? Just just tell people exactly what they want to hear. Hananiah was popular because he told Israel what they wanted to hear, which was, we're going to get out of this thing. We're not going to have to go through this whole 70 years. The problem with that is it was false. It was not true. You know, one of Satan's oldest tricks, (laughs) one of his oldest tricks is to tempt you, listen, is to tempt you with something that God will do by telling you that he will do it right now. Satan loves to take something that God has said that he will do and say, actually, God wants you to have that now. You know, he did that with Jesus, right? If you want to know Satan's best playbook, look at the plays that he used on Jesus because Jesus was his greatest um, uh, opponent. Jesus was his his greatest and, and most perfect human, the true Adam. So how did Satan tempt Jesus? Well, here's what Satan did with Jesus. In, in, in the, the 40 days of, of fasting, Jesus is starving in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and he begins to tempt Jesus. And what does he do? He says, you should take the crown and skip the cross. That's how Satan tempted Jesus. He took him up to a high place and he said, look at the kingdoms of the world. I'll give it to you. You can skip the suffering part. You can skip the beating. You can skip the wrath of the Father being poured out on behalf of your people. You can skip the rejection of man. You can skip the betrayal. You can skip the blood and the tears and the sweat of the cross and go straight to glory, right? And the promise that Jesus was operating on was the promise of the Father that he would inherit glory. But there's a timeline here. The glory comes through the cross. The crown is on the other side of the cross. See, it's in your endurance that you gain your life. We don't skip the cross to get to the crown. Satan's trying to pull Jesus out of God's timeline to get him to disobey. Another one is in the wilderness, he says, hey, Jesus, you're starving. Why don't you just take a rock and turn it into bread? What's the big deal with that? He's trying to get Jesus to believe that surely if God loves him, he would not leave him hungry. Take things into your own hand, Jesus. Surely God wants you fat and sassy. He wants you healthy and wealthy and happy and comfortable. That must be God's will for you because if he doesn't give you that, he probably doesn't love you. You see how Satan does that? He's attacking the very goodness and the very nature of God. He does the same thing in the garden with the first Adam. He comes to Adam and he goes, Adam and Eve, and he goes, God's holding out on you. He has more for you. You've got to short-circuit God's will, short-circuit God's plan. 
Now we're all in a broken world. Thanks a lot. Someone, listen, this is, this is so important. Someone will always be there to tell you that disobeying God is not only acceptable, but it's preferable. Someone will always be there to tell you that disobeying is acceptable and that hardship is avoidable. There will always be Hananias in our culture. There will always be Hananias in your life. They're ready to sell you a book or sell you something to tell you that you don't have to struggle anymore if you just do their program. Someone will always be there to say that. Let me give you an example of this, and I'll try to, I'll try to trade carefully. I'm a guest speaker, so I can take risks, right? Um, <laughs> You can't fire me. Okay, it's great. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. I'll try not to paint with too fine of a point, but this, I think this needs to be said. So some months ago, there was quite a, a controversy in Christianity centered around a particular conference put on um, by a church called North Point Church, where Andy Stanley is the pastor. And this conference was controversial because it was a conference designed to uh, equip parents of LGBTQ children to try to handle some of those, the complexity of those issues. It actually sounds like a great idea. If you're a parent and you have a child who's same-sex attracted or struggling with that or is, is struggling, struggling with gender uh, ideation, whatever all the language is, you know, if you're struggling with that and you don't know what to do, so Andy Stanley's like, well, let's create a conference to give tools and resources for this. Great. Seems like a great idea. Well, here's where things went wrong. Andy filled the stage with keynote speakers that were not Christians, that were pushing worldly uh, propaganda and staged with, with people that were accepting of their same-sex attraction and living in homosexual lifestyles and still claiming to be faithful Christians. He filled the stage with, with them and held them up as the, 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 sort of the, the leader of the thinking. Well, this obviously caused the Christian community to go, whoa, what are you doing, Andy? This is crazy, right? Well, there was like, a, someone shook the hornet's nest, right? So Andy, he's like this mega church pastor. Everybody's looking at this guy, right? So, so he, he's got to preach on it. So the next Sunday, he gets up to address the church and try to bring some clarity to this conference. And everybody's watching. And I watched. I was curious. What's Andy going to say? So I got on and I watched the sermon. And you can watch it. Here's what he said. He said, to be clear, we believe in a traditional biblical view of marriage. And I was like, oh, good, 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 thank you. You're not undermining the Bible. But then this word came. However, I always get nervous when someone says, we believe what the Bible says, but we believe what God says in his word. However, here came the next line. We recognize, listen to this, don't tune out on me, we recognize that sometimes... That's just not enough. What is he saying? He's saying, rightly so, he, he's, he's compassionate for the person who's struggling with same-sex attraction because that is a sin proclivity. We all have sin proclivities, every one of us, and we all have to deny those sin proclivities to honor the Lord. So out of a desire, I think, to want to you know, help these people, he wrongly says, but here's the thing, God's design for marriage and sexuality just may not be enough for certain people. So therefore, they should be allowed to live in rebellion against God. You following that? Now, a famous author, Christian author, Sam Alberry, who is same-sex attracted but has chosen not to act on that out of a desire to honor God in God's holiness and God's plan for gender and sexuality and marriage. Sam Alberry responded right away. He said, that's interesting that you would say that, Andy, because that's exactly what Satan whispers in my ear every day. And that is, you know, God might want you to have this, even though it goes against his will, because God wouldn't want you to not be happy. See, the problem is, is that Andy is elevating marriage and elevating romance and elevating the senses and elevating community and all the great things that come with marriage. And he's saying that perhaps is greater than honoring God. To which we as Christians should go, there's nothing greater than honoring God. 
God himself is superior to any relationship, be it monogamous or not. God is superior to anything in this world. And that goes for singles that are called to singleness. It goes to anybody that is choosing to set aside something for the superiority of God himself. Because faithfulness to God is the greatest treasure we can know. And if we come along and we go, actually, God would never want you to be unhappy in this life. You actually cut the legs out from the gospel. And you miss what Jesus was saying in that it's through your endurance that you gain your true life. We all, as Christians, are called to set aside something in this life. The purpose is that we would see that God is our true treasure. God is our superior worth. I don't bring this up to try to bash Andy Stanley. I bring this up because I want you guys to see how this creeps in. That there will always be a false prophet in our culture willing and ready to tell you that you can disobey God if it means you'll be happy in this life. To which we should say there is no greater happiness than faithfulness to God. Because God is the source of all eternal joy. And his glory and my joy are the same thing. All right? Paul warned Timothy, didn't he? 2 Timothy 4.3. He said, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. Listen, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul warns Timothy, there's always going to be teachers. There's always going to be people that are going to say, you can have the crown without the cross. That you, you, you should be thinking about this life now, not the next life. That you can have your best life now. Okay? Well, what happens when we try to skip God's scheduled events? What happens when we try to bypass the hard things that we have to take up? What happens when we try to say, yeah, I'm not going to pick up a cross and follow in the way of Jesus? That's too hard. What happens? Well, a few things. First of all, we don't escape hardship. We short-circuit what God was trying to do within it. Secondly, we put the value of comfort over the top of the value of our creator. And thirdly, we take God's job because we assume we know better. Therefore, diminishing faith and diluting discipleship. This cannot happen. Now, let me give you some current examples to try to make this relevant, practical. What are some current examples of false prophets in our day, like Hananiah? Let me give you three types of false prophets in our day. Number one, the false prophet of prosperity theology. The false prophet of prosperity theology, a.k.a. name it and claim it, word faith, kingdom now, blab it and grab it, whatever you want to call it. Okay, I can have whatever I want if I just have enough faith. This rightly embraces God's promises, but wrongly understands God's timing. These people are right to say, yes, God is going to give you perfect health, perfect joy, perfect absence of struggle. But the question is when. They would say, you can have it now if you just believe for it. To which I would say, that's exactly what Satan told Jesus in the garden. Do not undermine the precious suffering that God allows in the life of the believer in order to prepare us for eternal reality. The problem with this is that it endears the heart to the idols of comfort and ease and the senses, while at the same time eroding the believer's ability to suffer with patient endurance. What it does is it takes the rock climber on the wall, it takes the, the, the clip that's supposed to be on the wall, and it clips it to its own belt. It puts our faith in our own faith rather than in God's faithfulness, see? Our faith is not in what God gives us, our faith is not in our own ability to trust God enough to get him to give us what he wants, what we want him to give us. The clip stays on the wall, not on our own belt, right? Our faith is not in our own faith. Another false prophet of our day is what's being called right now the cult of wellness. Have you noticed? There's like a whole religion right now about how to be healthy physically, emotionally. In the cult of wellness, they say, sure, we need Jesus, that's fine, but what we really need is a good therapist good gut health, self-awareness, inner healing, emotional intelligence, essential oils, and a good Pilates class. Right? And they, they, they become like Hananiah. They come and they snap the yoke and they go, no, you don't need to struggle. 
you just need some kombucha. <laughs> if you, you're leaky gut, that's the problem, right? And I'm like, well, maybe I do have a leaky gut. I don't know, but my gut is going to die regardless of how leaky it is eventually, right? It's going to leak all the way to the end of this age. The cult of wellness. The, the, these prophets, these false prophets, they see the self as the savior. They see the therapist as the mediator. I'm not anti-therapy, by the way. But secular therapy attempts to get you to your own savior, which is self rather than God. See? And they see the whole world as their oyster. That's the cult of wellness. Let me give you one more. Quality of life legalism. That's what I'm calling it. Quality of life legalism. These false prophets say, I can escape hardship in this life if I just do the right things. This is a lot of what we see in Christianity preached, right? If you just take, follow these three steps to be faithful to God and he'll bless your marriage. He'll bless your parent. Do these things and your kids will turn out this way. And then your kids turn out the way you didn't plan and all of a sudden your faith is wrecked. I read the book. I did the things. My kids are in rebellion. I waited till marriage. I courted instead of dated and my marriage failed. Our sex life is terrible. So what in the world? I guess God isn't faithful. It's false prophecy. It's a false prophet coming up and snapping the yoke that God put on your shoulders and saying, actually, you don't have to carry that yoke. You can get out of it if you want to. You just got to do the right things and God will bless you. Beware of that. Beware of that. What are we to do to combat these false prophets? The same thing that the exiles were to do. They were to tune into God's certified prophet, who in this case was Jeremiah. But in our case, is Jesus Christ. God has sent the one and the true and the final prophet. His name is Jesus. And what Jesus told his disciples and what Jesus told us is that in this life you will have trouble. Bank on it. Count on it. But the good news is I've overcome the world. And it's in your trouble that you will find eternal life. It's not the trouble itself. It's what the trouble causes us to do, which is to reach for God. So, number one, that was a long point. Number one, ignore those who tell you God's will is around hardship, not in it. Number two, second thing is to see God seeing you and think about God thinking about you. See God seeing you and think about God thinking about you. Look at verse 11. God says to the exiles, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. What you need to know, believer, is that God knows what he's doing with you. That's what you need to know. And you may not know exactly what he's doing, but you need to know that he knows what he's doing. Are you with me? You may not always understand everything that he's doing, but you need to understand that he understands everything he's doing. He knows what's up. He has thoughts, eternal-sized thoughts. He's got this thing worked out, and he never stops thinking about you, and he never stops thinking about what he's doing in your life. He has that mental capacity. One of the reasons we have a hard time trusting God is because of our own limited mental capacity. You know, they've done studies that have shown that multitasking is a myth. Did you know that? We think we can multitask. Check my phone, drive, check my phone, drive, check my phone, drive, smack the kids, check my phone, drive, check my phone, drive, sip my latte, change the station, check my phone. That's, you're actually doing different things. You're just switching back and forth really quickly. Okay? Now, that wasn't describing my life at all. That was anecdotal, someone else, fiction. Okay. Multitasking is a myth, it doesn't really happen. And so I think for that reason, we think it's not possible for God to be thinking about me and everything else in the world at the same time. It's not possible for God to be thinking about every geopolitical issue in the world. I assure you, God has the mental capacity to have you on his mind and every daisy and every geopolitical issue and every world leader all at the same time. You are on the forefront of his mind. He never stops thinking about you. God wants the exiles to know, I know the thoughts that I have for you. Have you ever taken a trip with somebody and they did all the planning? That can go one of two ways, right? Depending on who it is. It can, it can go one way where you're like, this is stressful. They're going to they're gonna do everything wrong. They're going to get the tickets wrong. They're not going to get the motel right. 
Or if you have a lot of confidence in that person, it can be the most restful trip you've ever taken. I love going on trips with people when they take care of the details and I trust them. It's the best, okay? So you don't need to know the plan. You just need to know that you got a good planner. So you may not have full insight into why God has put you where he's put you, but here's what I want you to know. God knows why he put you there. He's got a plan for that. Number three, wrap it up. Number three, see that hardship is not meant to keep you from God, but to bring you to God. See that hardship is not meant to keep you from God, but to bring you to God. We see this in verse 12. Then God says to the exiles, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What I want you to see here is that the whole point of the exile, the whole point of the exile was God getting his kids to call out to him. It was the whole point. The point of the exile was to get them to find, call upon, pray to, and seek him. That's the language used there. See, they were so wrapped up in the false security of their own ethnicity and their own nationality and their own geography that they completely missed the fact that all that mattered was God. And so it took God literally ripping them away from all of those gifts to get them to finally cling on to the giver. It took God removing their death grip on the idolatry of their own ethnicity. See, they thought, we're Jews, man. We have God's sovereignty locked, or we have God's love and affection for us locked down because of who we are ethnically. So God had to rip that out of their hands. He had to rip the idol of the temple out of their hands and put them in a pagan land so that they would actually reach for him. God is not punishing his kids. He's training his kids. He's using the struggle to get them to draw near to him. We have this uh, language you use in my house uh, with my kids. It's that sometimes our kids need a timeout and other times they need a time in. Have you ever heard that? Sometimes your kid's behavior, it's like, okay, you need to go in the corner. There's other times where you go, you know what? I think what you really need right now is you need a hug, buddy. And sometimes it's both. And I would argue that a timeout should always end in a time in, Right? Because, see, we're not trying to teach our kids, you're despicable, get away from me. We're trying to teach our kids, I want you to come to me. I want you to see that I love you. God's not trying to banish Israel. He's trying to get Israel to trust him. And it takes kicking Israel out of their homeland to get them to actually reach for him. So what God is doing in the exile, he's actually giving them a time in. God came with them into Babylon. That's what we learn in, in the, the vision of Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit leaves the temple and he shows up in Babylon. God is the God that goes with. He's the God that comes in. We saw that in chapter 3 of Daniel, didn't we? In the fiery furnace. They went into the furnace and Jesus was in there with them. I think it was Jesus and the lions. And Daniel went into the lions and went, you know, Jesus is in there with them. Sometimes God has to kick us out of things so that we invite him into things. The whole point of the exile was that they would call upon the name of the Lord. And it oftentimes is our struggles and our trials and our hardships that get us to a place where we finally invite God into these spaces in which we have blocked him out. It doesn't mean that we have to enjoy the hardship, but it means that we have to know that God is using it. He's doing something with it. God, like a master craftsman, is burning away the idolatry of Israel. Like a fever burns away infections, just the right amount of temperature is getting rid of this idolatry in Israel and getting them to trust God. We have to see this world and this age that we live in like, like that cast that you have on a broken arm, right? It's uncomfortable, it's ugly, it starts to be smelly, you make the best of it. It's not a means to an end. At some point, you're going to take it off. This age, this life, this broken body that you're in, this unresurrected level one body that you're living in, it's a means to an end. This world is like a cast. It's helping prepare us for eternal reality. We got to wear it, make the best of it, and realize that it's not forever. 
God is ultimately working all of the hard things in our life together so that we might get him. Because guys, trust me, God is better than a happy marriage. God is better than a happy family, better than a successful career, better than health and wealth, better than fitness, better than money. He is the supreme reality in all the universe. And don't ever let a false prophet tell you that you should take something else other than him. Every hard thing in our life is getting us to realize that God is the treasure in the field. He's the thing that we really want. He's the one that we're really looking for. God does not waste grief. Amen? He uses it. So, let me conclude. Next time you find yourself enduring the inescapable, I want you to remember that God foresaw it, that God plans to use it, that God can be found within it, and that God will end it. Amen? We're getting a new world. You're getting a new body. You get a new body. You get a new body. You get a new body. It's like the Oprah Winfrey thing. I don't know. Okay. Question is when? When Christ returns, we will meet him in the clouds. He will give us a new eternal reality, a new physical heavens and earth where we will be with him forever. And it is through this age and our faithfulness and our patience and our endurance and our trust and our worship that we will find true life. And don't ever, let tell, don't ever let a false prophet tell you that you should compromise your faithfulness to God because perhaps it's just a little too hard. It's not true. It's not in our avoidance that we find eternal life. It's in our endurance. So let me give you three pieces of advice. Number one, I encourage you to lean into it. Lean into it. Lean into your hardship. I used to go sailing with my dad, and, and the key to sailing is you can't go too too steep into the wind, you can't go too far out of the wind. If you go too steep into the wind, you'll flip the boat. If you go too far out of the wind, the sails flap. You gotta pick a tack that's just the right amount, okay? I'm not saying go crazy and start loving suffering. I'm not saying you should be stoked and happy about whatever it is that you're dealing with. I'm saying lean into it. Lean into it just enough to realize that God is doing something with it. Get the full work that God is doing with it. You can ask him to take it, you know, Jesus still asked God if he could not go to the cross. He still asked the Father. Remember that? But at the end of the day, lean into it. Number two, read into it. Lean into it and read into it, meaning bring God's word into it. God's word needs to come into the situation that you're in every day, every second, because you will lie to yourself and you will begin to question the goodness of God and your mooring lines will begin to become shaky. If you don't have confidence in the nature of God, you'll never have confidence in the plan of God. Bring the word, bring the truth into your life. Number three, bring people into it. Bring community into it. Don't suffer alone. Do it together. Do it with the family of God. So we have this beautiful text that many of you guys are familiar with. I know the plans that I have for you. Some of you guys have it on a fridge magnet at home. It's a beautiful verse. Most people don't realize the context though. What are the plans that you have for me? To stay in exile. Oh, I thought the plans means I get to get a new car and a better life. Eventually, the call of faithfulness is the call of the believer. And God is the sufficient resource. He meets us in those places. Amen? Let's pray. Would you uh, stand with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your goodness. We thank you that you do not waste the tribulations and the sufferings of this world. We thank you, Lord, that just like you reminded the exiles, who were also waiting, that you remind us today as we wait for your return to be faithful, to bloom where we're planted, to sink roots, not into the system of this world, but into the kingdom of God in the midst of it. Lord, we pray that we would be those who suffer well for your glory as we go through the things that we cannot escape. Lord, I pray for heritage. I pray, God, that they would continue to be a gospel light, a gospel presence of hope in this community. Just as, as I was walking around downtown this morning, it just feels like this city and, and, and my city, Grants Pass, and it's just unraveling. So much hurt and brokenness. I pray that these believers would be a testament to the superior value that you are, God, 
that you are the true thing we need. You are the true one we long for. And Lord, as we approach the table this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of your unconditional covenant love for us that you proved and showed in the person of Jesus Christ. That as we take the cup and as we take the bread, that we would remember, Jesus, that your body was given in place for us. That Jesus, you took the wrath of the Father so that we could take the favor of the Father in place of it. Lord, that you gave your life so that we could have your life. That you died so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could inherit eternal life. Thank you for this symbol, the sign of the covenant that we remember. We pray that we would be refreshed by the truth of the gospel this morning as we remember that Jesus, you said it was finished. Our sin is taken. And we wait. We long for your return. So God, meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.